Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. We are going to take those examples of Old Testament humanly devised activities in celebration of God's work and say, hey, nothing wrong with that. Jesus did it. He celebrated humanly sanctioned celebrations of, of thanksgiving to God. And let's talk a little bit about the coming of Christ to gain victory over your sin and death. I think that's a lot bigger thing. And it, I, think it, I think it warrants a humanly sanctioned celebration. just a few days out from Christmas, as I'm sure you're well aware. Even if you're a bit of a Grinch during the holidays, you know, it's difficult to entirely escape the festivities with all of the Christmas lights, music, and movie marathons. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares joins in the celebrating with a Christmas message all about, well, celebrations. Is there a right way to celebrate Christmas as Christians? Well, Pastor Mike has the answer, one that may surprise you. Let's listen to find out. back to another Christmas season. You get all the Christmas songs and all Christmas decorations out, and you're going to hear a lot of people tell you, Merry Christmas. And you're going to hear it from us, from this platform, Merry Christmas. And we want you truly to have, that we mean that, to have a very merry and joyful Christmas season. But sadly, there are many that have the merriment of their December impinged upon by, uh, by guilt. There is a kind of guilt that I find increasing among serious Christians. Uh, They want you to feel guilty about the very fact that you are celebrating Christmas. They're the kinds of folks that are going to come on the scene, look at all that you do that reflects a lot of our cultural Christmas traditions, and they're going to start talking about Druid priests, and they're going to talk about the cultic use of evergreen trees, and they're going to talk about the worship of uh, Saturn and the winter solstice, and uh, they've got all kinds of things to say to you that sound very interesting as it relates to history and guilt-inducing as they say to you, if it isn't in the Bible, you shouldn't be doing it. So uh, all this stuff that you're doing that really is reflective of a lot of the commercialism of our culture culture, or maybe some of these ancient practices that we've just thoughtlessly engaged in to think that we're just garnishing our celebrations really have a pagan root, and you should be, uh, you should really be thinking twice about doing all that. I mean, I don't want to do anything that's displeasing. We want to live lives, First Thess 4 says, pleasing to the Lord, and I, I, if it's not pleasing to the Lord, I, I need to know. So I think it would be good for all of us at the outset of another December with a lot of lit trees over my shoulder and Christmas parties that uh, certainly look a lot like what you see as you walk through the malls of of the modern era. I just want to make sure that if someone comes to you and says, hey, uh, that's pagan and it's wrong and it's displeasing to God and it's not in the Bible. And if you guys are about the Bible, why in the world would you ever engage in any of that? Uh, You better have a response to it. I really want to stand back and look at the fact, is there any justification for us engaging in a celebration on a calendar, and then even having a lot of things engaged in that celebration that uh, uh, reflect a lot of things that come from, I don't know, who knows where. And a lot of times, they're going to tell us where it comes from, and they're going to say, look at, the, look at the connections here. How do we respond to that? Well, speaking of paganism, I'd like you to go to a book of the Bible that is uh, seated in a pagan culture, a pagan context. The, 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 the stars of the, of the book have pagan names. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, this is such an interesting book. The name of God is never even mentioned in it. There are no prayers. There's no prophets. There's no miracles. Uh, it's in a foreign land. And I think it would teach us something about uh, the way God thinks about man-made celebrations. And I want to take you to the end of the book, at least the penultimate chapter of the book, in Esther chapter 9. Drop down to verse number 20. And I just want to study just a few verses here near the end of Esther chapter 9. And I want to find a template in this particular book, a book that I think will play into the argument that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to believe the YouTube uh, historians when it comes to their impinging of, of our merriment with guilt, we should maybe think about even what the reality of this particular celebration is. It ended up becoming a, a holiday on the Jewish calendar, one of the nine feasts of Israel called Purim. And I, I just want to think through this as a paradigm and see if we can't take that paradigm and take a look at the modern practice of Christmas and find any transferable concepts and principles that will rightly and accurately and fairly apply to what we're dealing with today when we think about putting up stockings by the fireplace. So let's look at this in verse number 20. Mordecai, after this victory, is going to write a letter. The Persians, by the way, had perfected the uh, postal service in that day. It was known for that in the 5th century. And so there's a lot of discussion about letter writing and letter uh, delivery throughout this book. But it says, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, who was also known as Xerxes in the Old Testament. Uh, so he's the Persian king, both near and far, which is thrown in to remind us of how efficient the postal service was. And what was the letter all about? Well, they were already rejoicing because they had won this war. They were slated for obliteration and slated for genocide, and they end up winning, and now they're at peace, and now he obliges them to continue to do what they were already doing, and that is they're having ticker tape parades, and they were celebrating. He was obliging them, these Jewish people who were saved, to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, same month, and to do that year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. Wow, victory. They were saved. And as the month that had been turned from sorrow into gladness, naturally it was, right? And from mourning, they were afraid they were going to be killed, into a holiday, a special day, a holy day, a day of victory, that they should... Make them days of feasting and gladness instead of burying their dead and saying, we're, we're, you know, we're all dead. No, it should be days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And how did they respond to that? The Jews accepted what they had started to do. They were already celebrating, right? And now it was codified as a holiday, what Mordecai had written to them. So this is not a prophet. This is not a leader. This is not Moses. But becomes one of the feast days of Israel in the calendar. I talked about nine feast days. There are nine feast days on the Jewish calendar throughout the 12 months of the year. Two of them were man-made. Seven of them were commenced and sanctioned by God, and all were obligated to do it because God said. But then there were two that were not, and this is one of them. Matter of fact, he goes on to explain a little bit more about that if you drop down to verse 26. It says, therefore, they called these days Purim, right? After the term Pur, which means lot, at least that's the, uh, that's the Persian name for it different word in Hebrew. Therefore, because, middle of verse 26, because of all that was written in this letter, right, that Mordecai had written, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail, every single year, they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan and province and city, and that these days of Purim, 
but should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And I would say, on what authority? And I'm going to say, it isn't Moses, and it's not the law of God. They're not even a mention of God in the book by name. This is a human decision by a human leader for a human celebration of a victory that, of course, was crediting God. But this was something that was so incorporated into the calendar of Israel, in part because God chose this book, didn't even mention God's name, as a reminder of how the sanctioning, the human sanctioning of a celebration was something appropriate for them to, to practice. And, and so they did. So much so that you can go down to Temple Bethel in March, near the end of March, and you can see them celebrating with costumes for their kids and candies and the reading of the Book of Esther. They still celebrate Purim as they do throughout the world in the Jewish communities. And all of that, not instituted by the Torah, right? This wasn't Yom Kippur. This was not the Passover. This was not the Feast of Booze. This was something that they decided to do because God had given them victory. I say there were seven feasts that were established by God in the Old Testament, one that was established by human beings here, Mordecai, in a book that didn't even mention God's name, that became an established, recognized holiday that they bound themselves to keep with God's favor, I would argue, because the book itself is in God's divine library. The other, which I haven't mentioned yet, was the one that we see created by people to remember the retaking of the temple in 164 BC in the intertestamental period when Judas Maccabeus is able to, to fight off the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes and to win back the temple during a great war. And they said, we're going to always celebrate this victory from our enemies. And uh, they celebrated it. It was called the Feast of Dedication. You know of it as the Hanukkah celebration that happens in Kislev, which is our equivalent of roughly December. And of course, they still celebrate that now today. Israel does. And the Israeli calendar, the, the Jewish calendar, they're celebrating Hanukkah and they're celebrating Purim along with the other seven biblically and divinely sanctioned holidays. They also recognize these two man-made holidays. Well, Jesus would never do that. Well, he did. And that's my point. We see the Feast of Dedication, Jesus celebrating it with the masses on the Temple Mount. He was so much in the center of it. It says in the book of John that at the Feast of Dedication, he was walking around in Solomon's colonnade. I mean, right in the middle of all the festivities. And he starts talking about himself because he was the fulfillment, not only of the seven mandated divinely sanctioned festivals, but also these two humanly sanctioned festivals. And God gives it honor and sanction saying, hey, when they decided in the Maccabean revolt to say, we're going to celebrate this, Jesus is all about it. He's all in favor of it. Well, it wasn't a God-made thing. I understand that. But because we see that humanly sanctioned celebrations of God's intervention and victory in the historical work of God throughout history, because God shows us that not only divinely sanctioned ones are the ones that you must, but humanly sanctioned celebrations are ones that you can, and I even think should, then I know this, the church isn't devoid of the opportunity to do the same thing they were doing then. And let's talk a little bit about the coming of Christ to gain victory over your sin and death. I think that's a lot bigger thing, and it, I, think it, I think it warrants a humanly sanctioned celebration. So number one, if you're taking notes just on the concept here in Esther chapter 9. The whole passage that I'm looking at today, verses 20 through 23, let us, number one, sanction incarnation celebrations. I'm fine with that. I'm good with that. And I don't think there's any way to argue that just because it's not in the Bible, we shouldn't do it. We should be able to celebrate God's victories. And we have been doing it in the Christian church for centuries, from the beginning. Have those celebrations changed? Sure they have. The cultural expression, yes, of course. 
Turn with me real quick, just a couple of passages throughout this morning's study of of Esther 9. Can you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2? Here's the thing we're celebrating. Look, Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Children, by the way, you can glance back up at verse 13. The quotation there, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's an Isaiah 8 quotation, but it's Jesus said it a lot. Like the father has given me this group of people. I am the shepherd. He's given me these sheep. These are my people. So he's got people, a gift from the father to the son. And those are his disciples, his people, including us through the ages. John 17 makes that clear. He has got these children now. He's got to somehow expiate their sin. He has got to get rid of the blot of their transgression. He has to somehow cancel out their sin. Well, since the children, right, are, are flesh and blood, He himself, likewise, you want a definition of the incarnation? Here it is, takes on flesh. He partook of the same things. What things? Flesh and blood. The Son of God, existing eternally in an eternal triune fellowship, takes on now flesh and bone. Got metatarsals, got a femur, got a radius and an ulna, got a cranium. Picks on all the bones, all the blood, all the sinews, all the, the, the nerve endings, all the vascular system, lungs. He takes on all the things that are like us to do something, right? To represent us before God in righteousness and to absorb penalty of sin in human sin. He's going to do all. Likewise, he partook of the same things that through death, his ultimate expiation of sin, his propitiation on the cross, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen, here's the thing. When you die, your heart, because you reflect the eternity of God in your heart, you're going to stand here at the threshold of death and you're going to go gulp and you're going to start quoting one way or another Hamlet, if you don't know God, and say to be or to not be, I, I don't know, right? I, whether I'm going to suffer the arrows and of the slings and arrows of, of this mortal life or, or cast off the, I'm quoting it poorly here, sorry, lit majors. Um, but as Shakespeare writes of that, that fear of what, what lies beyond, I don't know, right? To sleep, perchance, to dream. I mean, what's going to happen? I don't know, I'm afraid. That fear of death, completely eradicated by the fact that you can make peace with your creator through trust in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Christ, the eternal son of God, had to take on flesh and bone, live the righteous life I couldn't live, die the death I should have died, have God's wrath absorbed in that death so that I now can face death and say with Paul, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. To say the fear of death is, is gone. Even the grieving of Christian death is now tempered with hope. And I know that this has all been victoriously overcome. To use the word victory, it's used over and over in 1 Corinthians 15. This victory that is granted to us in Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Over what? Over death. Oh, death, where's your victory? It's gone. We no longer fear that because Christ has come and taken on human form, lived in our place and died in our place. Mordecai and Haman, that's nothing compared to Satan who would love as a thief, as a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says who comes to kill, steal, and he would love to have you have the same experience in eternality as he's going to have and have you destroyed and to be punished for your sin just like he's going to be destroyed and punished for his sins. He would love to have that experience for you and he wants you like a roaring lion. He'd love to devour you. He'd love to see more and more people in a place of God's righteous judgment. But you have had that reversed because our victor has come and put on human flesh. When God sent his son to do that and the beginning of this whole redemptive process, Christ taking on the same, flesh and blood. I I think that incarnation of of having the righteous payment of sin, taking on human, I I think that's probably worth celebrating. I mean, I I think that's something we should sell. Do you think maybe we should close our shops for for a little bit of time and 
and do some things and give some gifts and make some extra food. And I, I think that might be a, a good thing to do. And because I see that God has given favor to the sanctioning of those things from a human perspective, within our human minds, our human culture, we say, let's do this. And God goes, yes, thumbs up, Old Testament, thumbs up, New Testament. I'm going to say he's going to give a thumbs up to us celebrating the incarnation. And I think we ought to sanction that. In our minds, we ought to say, we are going to do that. They oblige themselves to keep this year after year, year after year on the calendar in a 365-day cycle. We're going to come back to this and celebrate it again and again and again and again. And it followed the pattern of the Old Testament ceremonies, whether it was Yom Kippur or whether it was the Feast of Tabernacles or, or, or whether you know, it was as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All of these were annual celebrations. And I think every year in our lives, we need to have that sense that here comes another reminder of the connection to something God has done. Okay, maybe, Pastor Mike, but still, the, the whole thing you got going on on the stage there, that's just pagan. You, you need to know that. Pagan, 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 pagan. Again, if you want to connect anything in this life to paganism and say because there is a connection in definition or history or use to paganism, you therefore must avoid it and not be a part of it, then I would take you back in your minds to the book of 1 Corinthians and remind you of this. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians and, and just deal with this concept here of how we cannot live with this sense of detachment from not utilizing anything in the world with a pagan background. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul had already talked about you can't leave the world. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. You should stay in the world as long as God wants you in the world. And if you're going to be in the world, you're not going to be able to avoid interaction with pagan-rooted things. Well, they had a lot of paganism going on in Corinth, and including a lot of things that were happening to take their food in sacrifice to idols because idols don't eat them, right? You had all of this dedicatory and mystical, prayerful giving over of things that were sacrificed to the idols of, of the day. Cities like Athens full of idols and in Corinth, all kinds of idolatry. And so if you were going to go to the, the meat store, right, the, the butcher, you were going to have things there that had already been ceremonially uh, sacrificed to idols. And so there's pagan connections is what I'm saying. Drop down on this passage to verse 23. It's like about all things are, are lawful, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. That's the concept. And we've got to decide, well, what is lawful, what isn't? Well, if you think about it, when it comes to my concern for others, verse 24, let us seek uh, not his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I still want to deal with the fact, though, but is it inherently wrong? So he deals with that in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions on the grounds of conscience. Now, we could spend the rest of our Sunday looking up online all the things that might raise questions of conscience regarding everything that relates to Christmas, traditional, American, Western celebrations. And you could say, I could spend all day doing that. And you're right, you could do that. But here's Paul's response to people that are going, I don't think we ought to do this because of a pagan connection. He now quotes Psalm 24.1. What's the next verse? He goes, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Guess what? The butchered meat that was there filleted by a priest or a priestess or who knows, maybe a, a, a temple prostitute to give that to an idol and then did it in the ceremony, now has it left over and sells it for a decent price at the meat market in Corinth. All of that, here, guess what? All of it belongs to God anyway. And, and there's nothing mystical or magical that somehow makes it inherently and in and of itself wrong. As a matter of fact, you got to remember, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
And you can say, well, I read something about, you know, the pagan connections of this, that, or the other as it relates to Christmas celebrations. And I'm saying, if you want to get into the place of finding pagan connections, you can find them. And if you do, you're going to be stuck. Do you like cake? Do you like cake? Do you like cake? I like cake. Chocolate cake? Definitely the best. Think about that. Do you understand cakes? Big part of idolatry was cakes, the making of cakes. And Greco-Roman worlds of, of giving cakes and offering cakes to their gods and goddesses. Not only that, to decorate them and to even have uh, candles upon them, right? The case for the pagan origins of cakes and especially birthday cake, you can find that all, all, all over the place. If you look for it, you can find it. The, you can find the pagan roots of just about everything, but I'll bet you probably, when your seven-year-old was having a birthday party, I bet you burned a few wax-wicked things on the top of a, of a decorated sugar pod with icing on it, right? And I bet you didn't feel like a pagan until someone like me gets on the stage and goes, that's a pagan thing you're doing there. And I think you should respond with Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, including rich, deep chocolate cake with burning flames on the top of it. And if I want to utilize that to celebrate the life and the gift of life in my child, listen, here's the deal, back off. And, and you need to stop with all of that. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares on Focal Point. We're discussing the intersection between the secular and the sacred when it comes to celebrating Christmas. We'll continue this fascinating topic again tomorrow. Now, to share this message with a friend, go to focalpointradio.org. Look for the message called Celebrate the Incarnation. Well, with Christmas coming up in just a few days, I think we were all hoping for some peace on earth in our country. But people are just as divided as before. Yeah, Dave, tensions are high, no doubt about that. If I had to pick a word, though, to describe what's going on, it just would be confusion, right? This place is confused. This country is confused. There's so many lies masquerading as truth out there. People don't know how to tell fact from fiction. And that's why more than ever, I'm wholly committed to the mission of Focal Point. Right? We want this daily program to be a source of clarity in a land of confusion. I'd like it to be some sanity in a, in a crazy world, some rest, some spiritual rest, some mental rest amid all the stuff that's going on out there. Just a voice, a beacon of truth with all the falsehood that's out there. That's what we want. We want to see these programs every day make a difference. Offer all of these resources through our website, our app, and on the radio, all for free because of the generous support of people like you. And that really is where this happens. It happens because we join together to make it happen, right? When we say we're running a lean ministry, we, we are. I mean, we really are an army of volunteers every single day helping to make this happen with a very lean staff and so much that's going on behind the scenes by people just sacrificing their time. It doesn't mean there's not expenses. Clearly there are. And we get bills every single month just like you do. And it's the generosity of our Focal Point listeners that keep us on the air, keep us going strong. So this December, if you would, if you pray about it, think about it, if you would commit to it, it'd be great to have you step forward with a special year-end gift to help Focal Point. Whatever that amount is, it goes directly toward fueling the ministry and reaching even more people with the truth. So confusion, I think that's on the forecast. That's not going away. Uh, probably only going to get worse, but here's the good news. We can continue to declare the depths of Scripture in a world that desperately needs to hear it. So thank you so much for joining with me in supporting this ministry and making that happen. To give your special Christmas gift to Focal Point, just call 888-320-5885. That's 888 888- 
320-5885 or go online to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly donors called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your consistent support plays an important role in helping us plan for the future. And we're so grateful. Sign up to become a Focal Point Partner today when you call 888-320-5885 or sign up online at focalpointradio.org. Whether you give a one-time gift or you sign up for monthly support, we'll say thank you by sending you a copy of Kevin Zuber's book called The Essential Scriptures, a handbook of the biblical texts for key doctrines. This is a handy reference that will enhance your Bible study time. Our website again is focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewey inviting you to join us tomorrow as we continue learning to follow the example of biblical history in crafting our own festive traditions. That's coming up Tuesday right here on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.